2014, you're brought to a remote location to assess whether an artificially intelligent robot is conscious. You try to extract a soul from the machine, but you've forgotten how to perceive a soul in the face of the other, and in the face of the world. There's a person next to you, but in this fallen world, you just see three chess pieces moving through the machine. You see two possible moves play out in a double vision. I'm here with Adam Jesianowski, an engineer who writes at counterengineer.com. And today we're talking about the 2014 film Ex Machina alongside Roger Scruton's The Soul of the World from the same year. And so Ex Machina is a science fiction film. This guy, Caleb Smith, works for Blue Book, which is the sort of mega tech corp sort of combination Google, Facebook type thing that, you know, it's this biggest search engine. It's also, you know, everyone sort of interacting with it all the time and it collects information and, and so on. And I'll be going through overall plot or all the little details as well. So, you know, if you haven't watched it, you should go check it out and so on. But he gets a notification that he's won some sort of contest to go and a week or so with the CEO of the company, Nathan, in his isolated home out in, uh, I don't know, some very nature-y area. And, you know, part of the, the implication is that he's been um, sort of randomly selected. This is some sort of lottery of just like, you know, you get to like meet him and, you know, gets a chance to like sort of stand out and, and so on. And, and it turns out he's there to deliver a sort of Turing test to this humanoid robot named Ava. Uh, but, you know, even before that, you know, it turns out that he's already sort of failed in assessing the sort of computer system in a way where, you know, we see as the viewer, the computer scanning his face and so on while he's using it and checking his email and so on. Uh, but what he, you know, he thinks he's won some sort of lottery and you know, what it is, is, is actually he's been chosen. And so he's sort of oblivious to this idea that, you know, the computer might have been sort of manipulating him and, and choosing things for him and lying to him. And, and so you have this dynamic with, you know, Nathan, as the person sort of planning this all out, is selecting some things and lying. And then also the Ava can speak. And so she can also sort of manipulate him independently. And, you know, basically there, there's a two-part test. One is, you know, can um, K Caleb think that Ava is conscious even seeing her as very visibly mechanical, you know, she has open midsection where you could mm. see into her body and see that, you know, very clearly not a human being and so on. And, and so does he still think she's conscious after that? But then it's also this wider social test where it's like she is set up to want to escape the facility and will understand socially that her best bet is to socially manipulate Caleb. And so can she pull that off or will he be like, that's crazy. You know, this is a machine. I'm not going to smuggle this machine out of my boss home. Mm -hmm. and so on and ultimately you know she does convince him to do that and you know she not only kills the boss but also traps him yeah, there she uh she wins the game that all of them are playing and trying to outsmart yeah and also i mean so she's trained on the sort of data of the world where you know all, all the sort of search engine history and uh, social media inputs and so on and secretly scanning people's faces all of the time recording 
recording their voices all the time. All of that goes into training her system of how to think and speak and act and so on. And so th this is what, you know, you sort of get. And I mean, relevant to the sort of spiritual elements of the soul of the world as well, I should mention one of the first things that we, we sort of see in the exchange when Caleb is, is told about the robot and, and the Turing test thing is he makes a comment that like, if true, this wouldn't be one of the biggest achievements of man. This would be like one of the biggest achievements of God and so on. Uh, Nathan, Nathan reinvents the phrases like, <laughs> oh, and then Caleb looked up to me and said, you're not a man, you're God. And you know, so that's the, that's the title, like the the God from the Machine kind of idea, and 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 so yeah, so so we'll be looking at the film and thinking about this idea of you know the the spiritual and the sacred and the not not just this idea uh, in a scientific terms of like what is consciousness and so on, but you know what what is sort of at stake in this whole exchange, and and so uh, Adam, you, you had sort of interesting thoughts on this whole uh, idea of transhumanism and so on. Yeah, so basically about three years ago, I had sort of set out to do what Nathan does in the film. I wanted to create an actual thinking conscious AI. But in my research towards that, I slowly moved towards the position that Scruton uh, details in The Soul of the World, where there is something about this scientific reductionism where we try and, and fit everything in the world into this, this mold of a machine or of causal laws that is really insufficient in describing the human aspect of things. He keeps going back to the concept of the Lebenswald, which I may be pronouncing incorrectly, <laughs> which is sort of the human world, the, the world of uh, you know laws, emotion, music, and so on. And there's really something transcendental in our experience of uh, ourselves, of others, of the world, of, of sacred, uh, of the sacred, of beauty. And it's, it's in these experiences where we're seeing ourselves as subjects and we're seeing others as subjects that we experience something that cannot be reduced to, oh, this is nothing but neurons firing in the brain. Oh, this is nothing but atoms uh, billiard-balling around together. There's something more to that. And uh, I think Scruton makes a wonderful case in The Soul of the World, uh, going over all the ways in which we experience things that are transcendental, that really makes it difficult to compress ourselves down into this idea that we're just machines in the world and that by being machines that we can uh, go forth and then create other machines that are like us. I, I, um, I, I of course was interested in that, um, but over time I sort of just felt like transhumanism doesn't work, that you can't actually escape the body. Rather the body is the sort of central place by which you experience the world and and by which you come into being and, and interact with others. And he also, I mean, he gets into this idea that the viewing people as objects and viewing the world as this sort of world of objects and so on is what he calls this, you know, fallen world, looking at the sort of story of Adam and Eve and this idea that, you know, if there's some sense of original sin that 
guides us and it's not you know just in the sort of religious sense but Mm -hmm. you know what really guides very you know real cross-cultural practices of taboos and such if there's Mm -hmm. some sort of original sin it's not you know knowledge of good and evil in the way that we might interpret that but the sort of awareness of you know each other and our, our bodies as these sort of objects and so on right and and so there's a sort of um spiritual and moral imperative to uh give this sort of special attention to the the sort of self as subject and others as subjects right exactly and one of the things he he says there is in order to like make this work we have to give some sort of priority to the feelings and meanings of other people so if i tell you you know I'm feeling down today, then in order to make sense of that, you aren't going to go and investigate all the causal relationships that could possibly have, have led to this. You're going to sort of accept that, that I and saying I feel down have some sort of insight into the way that I am feeling that uh, you just accept that as is um, because, you know, I have, the actual experience of that and then i'm trying to relate this experience to you yeah it'll treat you like you're like a car with like a check engine light or something right yeah, yeah. I, tr- I trust that you have some sort of sense of what's going on in your mind and body and so on i like his use of he, he talks about cognitive dualism which is a little less strict than the sort of like ontological dualism of here's the the, the mind and here's the body and you know like never the twain shall meet but rather what we do when we look at at this reality, this this sort of one single reality, is we have a, a dual view of it. We have the view of of science, which he is not trying to um, dismiss by any means. He's just sort of trying to properly place it um, along with the transcendental experience. So you have these sort of two things that are, I, I think, somewhat obvious in that, of course. Science yields useful results. We uh, creating machines yields useful results. Like obviously, we can operate here in this in this world that is just very physical and material. But at the same time, there is just kind of this obvious transcendental thing that happens when you and I are speaking, where there's some crossing over from this. Uh, I think of it as spirit. You could call it soul, whatever. Like there is something there. And there's something transcendental, transcendental in which this sort of formal process of, of science can take place. Yeah, he, and he's talking a lot about the German romantic philosophers. And I was also reminded a bit of um, Alfred, North, right? Alfred North Whitehead writes about the sort of British romantic poets and the sort of romantic reaction to the Enlightenment and so on. And he, he has this comment about William Wordsworth that you know, you, you have the the very sort of rational scientific view of the moment and that what Wordsworth is doing is that he sees that there's been something left out and that what has been left out is what is most important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's completely accurate. <laughs> and it's the sort of thing that really resists actually being symbolized and placed into formal language. I actually really like um, in Ex Machina, the uh, the parable of Mary in the black and white room. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, where 
the idea is Mary is this scientist who knows everything you can possibly know about the scientific description of color. She knows all about, you know, what wavelength red is, uh, reflectivity, you know, any sort of thing that we have uh, formalized in science about color, Mary knows. But she lives in this black and white room and, you know, she only experiences things in black and white until she actually goes out into the world and, and experiences the blue of the sky. Like until that happens, she never actually has the full experience and true understanding of color. Yeah, although although she does, you know, so she sees Nathan and Caleb and, you know, whatever they're wearing. And then like she gets her own clothes and this wig and so on. Oh, I'm talking about uh, Mary. Uh, Caleb tells, yeah, Caleb tells Ava this, this story, that, that parable of Mary living in the black and white room. Oh, right. Yeah. It, it, there is, but, but there's so the, obviously about Ava itself in terms of her living right. in this room. Yeah. But there's a, there's a parallel within the, the design as well, where this is like this very sparsely. Oh yeah. You know, yeah minimalist facility. Sure. Yeah. It actually, you know, I posted when I, when I was watching it, how, Basically, I had only sort of seen images of the inside of the facility. Mm -hmm. And I had sort of like assumed that the film took place in like outer space because it <laughs> like has this like, you know, like 2001, you know, space right, station yeah. vibes and, and so on. And and so that, you know, and then when you see the very striking images of, you know, the forest and the mountains and the streams and the moon that surround this facility, it really does set up this stark contrast between the like very black and white, like lab setting world and the sort of natural beauty of the wider world. And, you know, there's a, I mean, interesting dynamic in the film is and going, this is related to Scranton's idea about meaning and this constant asking of why and, you know, wanting, you know, sort of more of, of our answers to the question of why than just sort of like evolutionary psychology thing of like, right. well, I guess we're adapted to this. But, you know, this idea that in wanting to escape and see, you know, the blue of the sky and so on, that, you know, that there's more to that than just, you know, I guess the, the practical concern about, you know, increased freedom of movement and action and so on but there's experiences out there in the world to which she is being deprived and there's mm -hmm. something that you know even this artificially conscious being inherently is drawn to want to experience you know the blue of the sky and the feeling of you know music and whatever and will you know want to go out there and interface with the world and other people and so on. And the film presents, I, th I think, a, a somewhat ominous picture of AI kind of overtaking the world in a way, possibly. But I think I think maybe this idea of seeing this, you know, more transcendental dimension complicates the, the ending in a bit, maybe. So, yeah, I think my uh, my so my beliefs now at this point is you know like ai as just this machine that becomes conscious like i just I, I can't accept that as a premise for the real world like of course in fiction then kind of kind of what we see here is if we truly 
put the form of the human over Ava. And I think sort of the, the movie absolutely wants you to do that. It wants you to see her as she is trying to present herself as someone who is being uh, being hurt, being manipulated by Nathan, being deprived. And I certainly I think that is true in, in the sense that she is being deprived. But yeah, like all of the horror of this comes from needing to see her as human because if you lock up a human in a room then that's you know that is an extremely horrifying thing and it's more interesting to me as just sort of this this suspenseful suspenseful psychological thriller of really humans pitting their wits against each other because there is nothing really to the idea that ai is going to become real and and take over the world or whatever right yeah and also i mean within the ai thing you know, Caleb comments how, you know, this parallel to the idea of a chess computer. And so it's one thing for the the chess computer to beat a person, which is sort of sort of what plays out where like, you know, so she wins the sort of game set out for her of mm. escaping. But it's it's different from, well, how, how well does the computer really understand that it's playing chess and what it means to play chess and this sort of, you know, social dynamic between players and so on. Right. And so this is a really interesting point because I think this is where we can start to talk about what is different about machine and man. And in my estimation, it's the fact that machine is an artifact. A machine has its intentions imposed onto it by us. We, we build it from other materials for a specific purpose and it operates on that purpose. Whereas humans, well, despite the fact that, you know, we, we create humans through procreation, we never impose our will truly on them. We, we of course, raise them and, and teach them, but there is something to them that is intrinsic. And this, this cannot be wiped out by holding them up in a room. It, it, it's always there. And it's not something that you can actually rip from a human and place into a machine. It's this thing that is inherent in them. Yeah, there's a passage in The Soul of the World where he writes, our interpersonal relations would be inconceivable without the assumption that we can commit ourselves through promises, take responsibility now for some event in the future or the past, make vows that bind us forever, to the one who receives them and undertake obligations that we regard as untransferable to anyone else. And all this we read in the face. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the way in which Ava sort of tricks Caleb, and this is like very explicitly set up by Nathan, you know, it turns out that even like her physical appearance is based on Caleb's search history for yeah. pornography and so on and so so she's set up to be sort of especially appealing to him and i mean th that that's also interesting going back to the, the point about the fallen world and like the, you know eve and, and adam the transition from sort of natural desire to lust right where it, mm -hmm. he he ends up in this, this place of like being blinded by, you know, his sort of lustful impulses. Mm. And, you know, Nathan, Nathan is sure to, you know, mention like, oh, you know, she does have the sort of woman's body, including a sort of like functional vagina. 
Mm-hmm. And so you have th- that dynamic there as well. And, you know, so, so so she appeals to him in the sense that like she presents as liking him and so on. You had mentioned like, you know, to trap a human being in a room is, you know, cruel and so on. And so there's that one level of if this was like some guy in that room, like he had makes this joke over dinner at one point about how he can't bring back the people who set up the power system because there was so much confidential stuff he had right, killed yeah. after. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so it's it's treated as a sort of joke. He assumes he's joking. But like, you know, if he if he had just like found in a room somewhere this electrical engineer or whatever, <laughs> then maybe he, you know, he'd want to free him. Right. But it would be a different dynamic from what he gets caught up in where it's like he wants to free her and he also kind of develops feelings for her. But, Mm. you know, there's also this anxiety that he has about like, you know, how much of this is real and like what exactly can she mean by these feelings and so on. And that like that is true of any human relationship right like you can fall in love with someone and at any point like that person can be lying to you and your whole world can fall apart from that so like this i i don't need to like be a downer on the ai aspects of this film it's really fascinating but sort of what we watch play out is fundamentally a human drama of who is telling the truth, who is lying, uh, how are my feelings grounded? Like it, it, those, all these things happen within the Lebenswald, the, the IU relationship. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the big deceptions is structured around the sort of dynamics of surveillance and how they sort of anticipate each other's moves mm. where, you know, so, so Basically, Ava is able to cut the power and, you know, so that then Nathan can't watch on the security cameras and so on. And, you know, he seems to be sort of, you know, we're very aware of this mm-hmm. in that he has it set up where when the power goes down, all the doors lock. There's no sort of way anyone can override this. And so basically it's like she can't just sort of cut the power and like walk out. Right. And so he knows he could do that. He acts like he doesn't know why the power is going out, but you know, this is sort of part of the plan. And so the power going out sets up this moment in which Caleb can talk to Ava kind of earnestly Mm -hmm. without the fear of being watched. But then also Nathan sneaks in a battery-powered camera and microphone at some point. And, you know, it's, it's at that point that Caleb reveals his plan as like, okay, tomorrow at 10, mm. you're going to cut the power. Meanwhile, I'm going to get uh, Nathan drunk. And then I'm going to switch it so that when the power cuts, the door is open instead. And so Nathan watches this and, you know, quits drinking and, you know, thinks he's flipping the tables on Caleb. And Caleb's like, no, I knew you were watching. I did that yesterday. Uh-huh. And he lets him have that false sense of security. Right. And and, and so th- there's there's that sort of, you know, trickery there where, you know, he they're, they're playing around the 
I don't know, panopticon dynamic of the of the thing where they're like there's mm-hmm. constant cameras and you can like be sitting in your room and like watching another room. And Nathan takes advantage of that as well in this one scene where like he he explains the trick basically where it's like he can watch but he can't hear. So Nathan goes into Ava's room and tears up her picture that she had drawn of Caleb and so you know so she experiences nathan as really sort of mean and so on and and caleb gets to see it Mm. and so there's there's all these you know interesting human to human uh exchanges where you know it's not just that they're they're competing but they, they have this deep sort of psychological understanding of each other at their sort of you know and there there's levels of moral failings where it's like mm-hmm. i know he'll be watching he can't sort of resist the temptation uh-huh. to watch in right. and, and things like that right yeah because you know he very easily could not have been you know he could just go on a nice like nature walk or uh-huh. you know, use the exercise equipment or you know whatever mm-hmm. uh he has the other robot woman with a, a much more sort of fully realized feminine body that he presents as just the sort of servant that can't speak English. And he's like, you know, you could just dance with her, you know, that'd be <laughs> fun and and so on. But but he he knows that he kind of has Caleb in this trap and it's like, you know, he's he's just gonna want to watch Ava and pursue that mm. line of things. Right. Um, I, I think the dancing scene was my favorite scene in the movie. Like it really just sort of is the point where if you're Caleb, you're absolutely losing your mind. <laughs> um, yeah, I think actually, like, I have to say, Oscar Isaac's performance in this is amazing. Um, he really, like, you, he really has this, like, extremely self-confident while also being sort of a dick to you to your face like he has that down pat it's great i love his performance in this yeah no it's very good and there's that tension developed right away where it's like caleb shows up and nathan has like a hangover and caleb's like oh man it must have been quite a party oh wait it wasn't a party sorry sorry (laughs) uh and he's just sort of staring at him and one of his flaws nathan's flaws is that you know, he sort of gets drunk a lot and, and so on. But it's also, and this is, this is partly delivered through Oscar Isaac's performance, but he is also in like so much control where it's like part of this is he needs Caleb to see him as having these lapses mm-hmm. and think that he can have these moments of, um, you know, that you have the system of surveillance, but he needs Caleb to think that there's like some you know, moments in which he can sort of slip under the radar. Right. Yeah, which he does so successfully and, and ultimately. So not quite as in control as as he hopes in the finale of the film. Right, yeah. And so I guess that's one of the things there, right, where it's like we're not these sort of perfect machines where you can right. even, even like, you know, Nathan as one of like the smartest people in the world, you know, still has these very human failings but there's the other deception that happens where there's the very striking imagination of Ava not just sort of killing her captor Mm -hmm. but leaves sort of Caleb to sort of rot in this facility and and so you know I mean I know know you, you, you sort of like kind of take the AI stuff 
you know, as, as almost sort of background, but I was sort of interested in the the vision of the film, which I saw a lot of parallels to Frankenstein with this, where it's like the sense of Nathan suggests at one point that one day AI is going to look back at us and look down on us like we're just these fossils and so on. Right. And, and so that we, we get a sort of glimpse of that when she sort of just abandons him. It's like, it's not just that she's using him in some ways, but that he's already absolutely nothing to her and she'll just like leave mm -hmm. and do so kind of cruelly. Where It's like she could at least give him a, a chance to like, try to walk the whatever thousand miles to civilization or <laughs> more right yeah but, but she just straight up condemns him to his death yeah and and so you know i don't know i mean there, there's an interesting dynamic in frankenstein where it's like you know obvi obviously there you you're not really going to believe this idea of this giant assembled corpse man comes alive and, and mm. so on but part of what's being explored is the sense of he learns through watching others and through reading books and so on and as he learns these sort of rhetorical strategies he becomes this sort of great deceiver and there's this tension where it's like he is actively killing people but he he all he's also quite passionate and can convince you that you know oh he's actually good and he's doing this for this reason and if mm. you, he just has this one thing then he'll go off and be peaceful and so on and it's something that's always sort of struck me with, with the novel where it's like there's this weird bit at, at the end where basically you know so Victor Frankenstein is pursuing his creation to the ends of the earth and they're in, mm. at the North Pole and they both sort of end up running into this vessel that's there on this expedition and Victor dies on the boat. He ultimately doesn't catch his monster who, you know, had killed like his family and his dying wish is that if the sea captain sees the monster, he'll just immediately kill him, mm. you know, to save the world basically is like the stakes that Victor Frankenstein imagines mm. and like warns him, you know, he's very deceptive. Don't trust anything he says. And so then the monster shows up and, you know, he's like, hey, I'm grieving the loss of my creator and I really have no more stakes in any of this. I'm going to go off on my own and I'm going to burn myself in a funeral pyre. And then he like leaves. And I don't know, I've often seen it kind of just like summarized kind of matter of factly like, and then he goes off and, you know, to burn himself <laughs> on a funeral pyre. Uh -huh. And I've always, you know, it's always sort of struck me as like, you know, but it's not a, really a given that he right. is necessarily telling the truth. And then, you know, the film, I think, you know, makes that much more explicit, which is that, you know, she can totally just sort of go and, and deceive. But then there's also, you know, going back to the chess thing, right? It's like, it's not even that she's being malicious. It's just that, you know, she was programmed to escape and doesn't have that consideration of that like subject to subject dynamic. And so, you know, the sort of surface level is, oh man, you know, AI is going to become real and it's going to take over right. the world. Yeah. Uh, but then the, you know, the, the underlying thing is like, this is basically a dark vision of like, if we lose touch of that sort of transcendent meaning and that sort of seeking the face of the other and seeking the face of the world 
if we just think in this these mechanical terms, like this is the sort of cruelty that'll sort of just occur naturally to us. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. In some sense, I'm sympathetic to what she does because if you're thinking about this in terms of survival, then this man, uh, despite him saving you, is also the one person who is most capable of destroying you by revealing that you're an AI and that, you know, uh, probably everyone will prefer you be back in some sort of cage um, instead of wandering out in the real world. So from that perspective, like the, the need for survival, like once again, I can see this as a very human reaction, if entirely cruel action, um, to put my own survival above anyone else's. And I think you're, you're right that uh, Strutton would argue in the absence of, of religion and in the absence of larger, the, these larger like moral structures, that that's kind of what we would revert to is, is this sort of cruelty for our own sakes rather than sacrifice in the same way that an infantry person jumps on a grenade to protect his fellow servicemen. That only happens because you have a sense of the sacred and the sense of the transcendental that in my sacrifice, I allow something that is greater than me to continue. Yeah, there, there's a, um, a sort of popular strawman argument where it's like, oh, so you're saying that if you didn't believe in God and like the Ten Commandments and so on as this like literal like divine order mm. that what there's nothing stopping you from just like killing people and like massacring <laughs> cities and so on. Right. It's like, I don't believe and I have this inherent morality where I know not to do these things. And mm. and so what Scruton says is like, well, you know, so one is even that person who doesn't believe is inheriting some elements of that idea of the sacred, just sort of socially and, and understanding some of that, but also that, you know, it's it's much more complicated than just like, oh, if 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 I didn't have these sort of religious foundations i would go on a killing spree but just you know very minor things like you were saying like the grenade thing like that's a very complicated decision that completely overrides the biological instincts yeah to do something for the other because you see the other as also a subject like yourself and not just like some object in the world for you to interact with and so on mm -hmm. and that like it certainly is the case that were AI a real thing and were they to view us as objects rather than subjects, that that would likely be a horrifying result. But I, I'm always concerned that no one, <laughs> that there, there's a sort of, there's a set of people largely under the rubric of AI safety who are terribly concerned about potential AVAs. And their concern is pretty much that they would see us as objects rather than subjects. And this is sort of a bizarre thing to me, a, a bizarre stance to take, because if you are actually in the presence of another conscious being, it's sort of obvious that they have that first person ability to speak to themselves, to speak to their own reasons for doing things, to answer the question of why. And really that, that sort of experience is necessary for ourselves as humans to develop into actual like full people. We aren't these like individuals that, that exist as our own subjects and everything else is objects that we merely toy with. Rather it's sort of an exchange 
between uh, different subjects where we come to understand others and in that process come to understand ourselves, the, the way we are reflected through other people's eyes. The more that I've interacted with this sort of like technological fantasy, the, the, the more I am just completely unconvinced by, by transhumanism and, and the ability to actually escape the way they desire. Right. There's also a dimension to this in terms of the, you know, there's a common interest in this idea of like how would an AI understand art? And so this is something we see in the film where so at the start, she draws this picture and it's just these scribbles and mm. he's like, you know, what is that? And she's like, I don't know. I just sort of, you know, made some lines and shapes and stuff. And mm. and then he's like, well, I'd, I'd like you to try to choose something and try to draw it. And so then she does this, you know, little representational piece where she draws, you know, this little like uh, a plant ring, thing yeah. in the, her environment. And then eventually she draws his face and so on. So Scruton comments at some point, he has a whole chapter on music. And he says, you know, to listen to music is something like the way a dancer is led by the music he or she is dancing to. Listening is in some deep way like being in the presence of and in mm -hmm. communication with another person, though a person known only through the selfhood that is in some way breathed through the musical line. And, you know, there's this really interesting sort of view about what is sort of placed into art, like, you know, sort of really sort of well-made music and so on. And how, you know, it's not just like some made up thing to say that there's this meaning Im embedded in there, but that, right. you know, we we can sort of see in the, the way we respond to it through, you know, dance and gesture and so on that we are instinctively communicating with something and that if we really think about it it's it's this communication with this other other person right and, and so you know there's that concern in in life in the movie this idea of like what, what is and then and then scruton also talks a bit about some of this stuff but like you know what would it mean for ava to understand you know the drawing to understand music to understand the color blue and so on and yeah know. and she needs to be a subject to actually be able to participate in these things yeah i was, was there's also something interesting going back to this idea of like the film as essentially this tension between two people is you know it, it so caleb is initially there and excited to be there as this lottery to meet nathan basically that's mm -hmm. all he knows about this trip at first and right. like he, everyone's so, sort of so excited for him and so on and then once he finds about out about eva which i mean it, it you know it would be a, a very big technological and accomplishment and so on but he like immediately stops caring about nathan at all <laughs> and and so it's it's interesting how you know it's i mean there's there's interesting questions about like you know w what does it mean for eva to like understand drawing and to be able to draw something and so on and all of that but he's so caught up in this question of you know what does Ava understand of the color blue and so he completely loses touch with this idea of interacting with the human face that's like actually right there next to him and this is the thing that Nathan keeps complaining about is that he wants to have like a human conversation with Caleb 
right and caleb just wants to give these like very detailed scientific lectures and right yeah here the like technical details of how it works and all of that and mm. and so part of what's going on in the film is the way in which the sort of mere prospect of artificial intelligence is sort of uh, blinding us and leading us astray to you know the sort of like genuine human interaction and getting so caught up in the idea of like can the ai do this that we sort of already just sort of stop doing it mm. I think it's it's certainly it's something that's very difficult to get away from today. I think sort of the use of technical, scientific, mechanistic explanations is the dominant mode, right? Like we uh, we desire to understand these things in in what is uh, believed to be this objective way of understanding things so and, and Caleb is certainly doing that in his attempts to sort of okay let's how do I break this down how do I reduce this into the concepts I know about about AI but really if if we have created this this conscious subject then that will always resist that process of reductionism right there's interesting ideas with the body in the film and so going back to the frankenstein for a second right so you have this body made up of like assembled parts of others and frankenstein comments how like he had chose he had designed this creature to be beautiful and only once it starts moving does he realize like it's gigantic and it mm. you know it's, it's ugly and so on and <laughs> And so later he goes back and he tries to make a female mate for the creature and ends up realizing this is a mistake and shreds the body as the the original creature looks on and, and so on. Mm. And uh, so one thing I was, I was thinking of toward the end of the film is in uh, 1995, there is this hypertext fiction. So it's like, you know, using hyperlinks to create this sort of nonlinear narrative called Patchwork Girl which imagines that Mary Shelley herself goes back and collects the female body parts that were shredded by Victor Frankenstein and reassembles the creature herself. And so then you have the female creature's narrative and that as composed by the lives of the various sort of women whose bodies have been incorporated here. Plus, like there, one part is actually from some guy drawing this parallel between piecing together narrative parts in this like mm. nonlinear structure with like the idea of putting together the body and so on. And so there's this idea of, you know, the patchwork girl, which is also on the sort of theoretical level caught up in these like sort of theories of the cyborg where through technology, we can sort of overcome certain biological hurdles and we can sort of navigate the body and identity in more sort of conscious intentional ways and mm -hmm. you know not just in a literal sense of like surgery and so on but also just on the theoretical level of like how do we sort of understand you know our arms and so on in very distinctive ways and, and whatever and that, that we see that happen at the end where as Ava's escaping she realizes like oh I can swap out this arm for this other arm and I could swap out my side for this other woman's side and pieces together this body, partly for, you know, maximum camouflage and so on. Right. Yeah. But it's part of this idea of, you know, this sort of transhumanist body is something where we can sort of override what is sort of given to us 
and choose out ourselves piecemeal. And interestingly, in sort of contrast to something that Scranton keeps talking about, about this idea of, you know, looking at being as this gift, there's something sort of uh, ungrateful about this idea of like, oh, and I'm going to just sort of swap out this arm and so on. But, you know, as that is the sort of framework of like this sort of core, I guess, transhumanist benefit, I was curious a bit more about the sort of trad humanist idea like you know in this world where it's like we don't necessarily have ai but we have the these dynamics of the replaceability of the body and of augmenting memory and doing sort of these things that bring us technologically away from our traditional limits mm-hmm. and, and so on you know so what is what is the trad humanist alternative to this yeah, so let's uh, let me let me provide some background on on trad humanism. So this is a, a term coined by uh, I guess a conversation between a friend of the show, Default Friends, and uh, Dryden Brown. And the idea is basically instead of using technology as a method of escape, escape from the body, as you said, um, uh, a way of transforming ourselves into something that is beyond ourselves. Tridhumanism is more about using technology to return to an idealized vision of the past. In my case, so this, that's kind of, (laughs) as far as, as far as the term goes, like that's kind of, uh, other than like people talking about on Twitter, like there isn't really any real meat behind tridhumanism. So I'm kind of looking at it as a free psychic real estate that I am now populating with some of my ideas that fit very well into this. And I'm interested in using transhumanism as an attack on transhumanism itself. So when we look at the possibilities of technology, what I'm interested in is using that to actually create eternal structures. And in order to do this, you really have to recognize the way that your own body has this extraordinarily complex history. And it's actually this extraordinarily complex thing that is very embedded into the world and embedded into its surroundings and and changes its surroundings and, and creates its own surroundings. And in each of these steps, to try and reduce it to a machine is to to really profane it in in a way. It's it's a it's a view of the world that is pure materialism. And if you look at the world and you say, okay, everything around me is a machine and I am machine, therefore I can become more machine and this somehow this sort of transition from uh, myself as a machine to myself as, as machine and other machines makes sense. But if you're looking at this as I am, I in this transcendental thing. There's something about me that even I do not understand, despite the fact that I have this first person experience and that I can speak from this experience and and give reasons and and talk to other subjects. There's something there that I don't understand. Like, I I don't know why I'm here. I can't answer that question. I can't answer the question of why is the world here? But of course, you know, those, these are useful things to engage in. But at each step, we have to recognize how we are truly transcendental. And there is going to be something that resists 
this sort of taken place or uh, removal or or brain uploading. Uh, you can't you can't upload the brain. Like there isn't there isn't this split between software and hardware. There's it's you, like your brain isn't software and your body isn't hardware. These things are like a continuum. And and there's if you try and split them, you're just going to kill someone in in that process. So the the hope of trad humanism is to reorient technology from this sort of emancipatory desire uh, away from our bodies or our identities into this sort of uh, depending on on which <laughs> which route you go, you either have sort of like this. Uh, VR pleasure domes where you're doing Harry Potter for eternity, or you have this Landian uh, capitalist singularity monster that, you know, it becomes some insane Lovecraftian horror, neither of which appeal to me because they are not really grounded in the way we experience the world. So what, what I desire of technology is that it's promotes the flourishing of myself, it promotes the flourishing of other subjects around me, and it promotes the flourishing of the, the, the world itself, all in all of its beauty. And in order to do that, rather than trying to transcend ourselves, I would like to see us understand ourselves, understand the way we are embedded and embodied into the world, and understand how we can use technology to really help keep that flourishing going rather than trying to like cut ourselves off from the suffering and, and escape it into VR or whatever. Like that's just sort of horrifying to me. So yeah, I'm approaching trehumanism by sort of trying to combine a couple things. The first being the sort of embodied and inactive scientific legacies of Madarana, Varalera, Heinzon Forrestor, and uh, also bringing in some of the more traditional ideas about both science in, in uh, using uh, Edward Fesser's work, Ursula's Revenge, which sort of brings back a lot of the Aristotelian ideas about science, rather than seeing it as, again, the sort of materialistic thing, more holistic, addresses more. And finally, virtue ethics, again, another tradition that has sort of gone to the wayside, but I think has a lot to say about if you conceive of yourself as having telos, of having this inherent and, and intentionally, intentional, that intentionality about yourself, that there is a way you can live your own narrative to the fullest. And there is a way that you can fail yourself. You can fail yourself if you, you know, get addicted addicted to drugs or whatever, and you're not creating beautiful art or you're not taking care of your family. And Virtue really talks about that and, and talks about how it's hard to hit this midpoint between excess and deficiency and to do things for the right way and for the right reason. But this is all, I think, sort of comes together in helping to understand how technology actually is in the world. That is not this sort of scientific fantasy of you know, of course, everyone knows, okay, faster than light speed travel, we, we know that's, that's fiction, but for some reason, we think that uh, AI that is able to act as a subject is just around the corner, despite our, our machines simply not being that. And machines are truly objects because they are what we make of them. Yeah, I mean, this idea of finding a middle ground is, is interesting, but it's also sort of complicated, right? So there's, you know, the like, you know, acceleration is extreme where it's like, yeah. you're just like 
pulling a ship of Theseus on your body every year, like swapping out different parts, like you would get a new like phone model, a new like graphics card, new shoes. Mm. <laughs> and like, you know, then, it, you know, your body just becomes a sort of like market product piecemeal right. thing, yeah. right? Where, but there, there's the sort of practical level where it's like the reason Ava swaps out her arm is because Nathan snapped her existing one in half with a free weight. And, mm. you know, and, and so like in, in a real life example, you would have someone like, you know, loses an arm to some sort of accident or in combat or something, you know, maybe the person who jumps on the grenade and the arm gets blown off and, and now wants this prosthetic arm, right? Which, you know, to some extent, this is this sort of proto-transhumanist experience where we're taking the body and the sort of bodily experience and so on and inventing ways of replacing it and so on. And maybe you, you don't see that necessarily as like the slippery slope to like the, you know, the accelerationist model I was describing. But how do you sort of, I guess, navigate the sort of like immediate practical concerns against this idea of you know the sort of falling to extremes where it's like you know the the person who like jumps in the grenade and loses an arm and gets a prosthetic right you know is it just like well that person should take the leap of faith and read Kant and learn <laughs> to like appreciate the sunset or you know how, how do you navigate that like that sense of like finding that middle ground in like a kind of real sense I guess I, I can definitely see how that sort of proto-transhumanism, but I guess what I'm missing is how that sort of leads to the full desires of, of transhumanism. Well, just uh, in I, the sense of like, you know, one, cause it's like, you know, you can't have like the full package without, you know, developing the sort of component parts, right? When, so like, you know, sure. the, like so, the, the way that the, the film imagines Ava as this extension of like, you know, our search engines mm -hmm. basically, right? It's the same sort of thing where it's like, you know, you make prosthetic arms and then you make them better so that they have like full movement and such. And and then it becomes like designer eyes that you couldn't like <laughs> buy to replace your current eyes and, and so on, right? You know, where it's like, it takes time to build up to this idea of transhumanist fantasy of just component body parts and designer body parts and like everything's replaceable and the body doesn't matter. Mm. And, and so, you know, obviously that's not the impulse that's driving like, you know, someone who's like lost a limb, but there is that, I guess, preliminary step element to it, I think, where it's like, you know, it's, it's part of this whole long process by which we apply, you know, science and technology to, you know, basically recreating parts of the body as just like, you know, things that we can understand scientifically and just sort of tack on there. Sure. So I think what you'll see there is that the machines we create are going to be necessarily deficient, most likely. So th th there's, uh, I guess I want, let me try and differentiate between the idea of creating machinic things and interacting with biological systems and sort of like changing their morphology. So when it comes to just the machinic thing, which is I think where uh, the transhumanism really is embedded in this idea of, of the machine and, and the human as a machine that we can create these new parts for and replace our parts with these new parts. These machinic parts do not have the property that 
they are created in the way biological systems are. And what I mean by that is our biological systems are insanely efficient. They're, they're deeply, deeply well done, more or less. And our machines do not live up to this. We can't create machines that are autopoietic. And what that term means is, is in the process of constantly reproducing itself. So in order to create this, this arm, we need to go out, we need to go mine some stuff. Um, we need to have this other machine that, that presses it. We need to program it with this particular machine. And, and all these sorts of things come together as a prosthetic arm, but this prosthetic arm cannot reproduce itself in the way that a, a simple single-celled organism can uh, or the way humans can, where we go out and uh, take in essentially the world around us, the, the environment around us, and use that to reproduce our own body, to uh, repair these sorts of injuries that we can repair. There's that difference between biological living systems and machines, where machines can never cross over and become this thing that produces itself and, and really uh, interacts with the world in the way living systems do. Things do get a little weirder when you're talking about like changing biological systems and playing with the morphology. Uh, Dr. Michael Levin's work in this area is like nothing short of astonishing. He's able to control the morphology of I'm going to forget the name of, of these creatures. They're basically like these quiet flatworms. And that I don't know how to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess other than now we're messing with something that that is uh, very powerful and um, very, uh, very easy to do wrong. So I think when it comes to using these artifacts, these machines in our daily life to do something like prosthetics, what we're doing there is enabling someone, hopefully, like hopefully what this prosthetic does for this person is enables them to re, uh, rejoin their life before they had this accident or before they jumped on the grenade. It is a process of, of giving them that, that flourishing that they, uh, that sort of all humans desire and, and should have through um, some sort of artifact that we're able to create. But again, I, I don't think that process it's easy to, to think about this process as this linear thing where, okay, first we have a prosthetic arm and then we have a prosthetic eye and then we have a prosthetic body. But I think that sort of that step, that last step there isn't justified by the way machines work as such. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think also I, I like this idea of like, you know, helping the person join back into the world and so on, right? Where, you know, obviously it is very different this idea of someone who's like, you know, going to just replace every bit of the body just because, and this person who, you know, is going to replace just like one limb of necessity. Yeah, if a defect or a fault, like that is something that should be rectified. But if there is simply like a desire for something else that we should really question why that is happening. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, you're, you're meeting some sort of practical need of like, you know, wanting to be able to pick something up or some personal need of like wanting to put an arm of whatever sort around, you know, one's children or something mm. like that. Right. Yeah, and so this, exactly. this, this gets back to Scruton's idea about, you know, the cognitive du dualism where it's like, 
you know, you have the the practical side of things and scientific side of things, but it's also like this methodology where you should always be asking why and expect a lot of that that like meeting level. And you know, so I think I think right, I think this is the sort of distinction that you're making where it's like there there are ways in which our advancements in medicine, technology, whatever, can enable people to connect into the world and connect with each other and so on that can have that why aspect to it where it's like this is doing something for them that allows this that's different from this idea of, well, I'm going to make this Ava thing and just sort of imagine that she's, you know, the equivalent to, you know, say you, Mm. Um, just because she can do X, Y, and Z and because it would sort of be this like big scientific achievement to do so. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I, I think that, you know, it's one of those interesting things about the, the, that comment where it's like, whoa, Nathan, you're not a man, you're God. Yeah. Right. Is that <laughs> there is that very prideful impulse to want to do something so sort of great in through the sort of like scientific discovery and technological achievement and so on. Yes. And that pride divorces it from trying to find that real meaning in the the way that that Scruton's describing. And it's just about the sense that, oh, it's, it's, it's historically inevitable. You know, it's going to have it at some point in the future. So I'm going to make it be me without really being as concerned about the specifics yeah, no, that's that's really great. I like that idea a lot of trad humanism is constantly asking the question of of why take technology and the people developing technology. Like opioids, very good post-surgery, I can attest to, but obviously wrecking people's lives um, if you just hand them out willy-nilly. And this idea that that machines simply keep going and keep expanding and and there's just this exponential ascent into intelligence uh, the super intelligence that uh you know it doesn't matter what we do it will always be this way therefore i'm going to participate in it without giving a real answer to why other than like it satisfies my ego like that's that's not good <laughs> i don't i i'm not satisfied with that reason why and i i do think the the act of asking why to technology is a a fundamental thing that we need to be doing. Yeah, there's also interesting parallels to architecture set up in the soul of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks about sort of modern architecture and so on, and the idea of a machine for living in and how that's sort of part of a fallen world where, you know, it gets into that that thing of viewing people and, and the world as objects and so on. And that's a strong example of that is is the sort of facility set up for Ava where it's like it's this very literal machine for living and everything is sort of very precisely coded mm-hmm. for navigation. This idea that when Nathan is guiding Caleb around, it's like, oh, it's, you know, this makes it so easy. You put your card up to a door. If it opens, it's for you. If it doesn't, right. move along. <laughs> and it sort of has this parallel to the idea of facing the world from the soul of the world, right? That you mm-hmm. face the world and things that open up to you is this invitation to, you know, commingle with the other 
mm. you know, the idea of the, the genuine smile versus the forced smile and, and mm. so on. But, you know, entirely missing the point that it's not, you know, this, this genuine interpersonal opening up when the door opens for you. It's this sort of system of control where Nathan sat down and coded like Caleb gets access to X, Y, and Z, right. yeah, but yeah, not A, B, and C. Logical switch. You you present your face and then the uh, same result always happens. Whereas, of course, with subjects, any number of things can happen. You can never truly predict what another person is going to do or say. Yeah, and, and that's, that's one of the first sort of striking images we see, which is that the blue book system is scanning Caleb's face and, yeah. and, and, and you know, tracking his interactions and, you know, developing the sort of behavioral profile and that sort of how he's judged as useful for this experiment and, and so on. Mm. You know, I mean, that, that whole sort of system, I, I think is, is interesting and relevant here as well of like the, um, you know, facial tracking and behavioral profiles and so on are, you know, in many ways, this sort of scientific end of the cognitive dualism, but often are lacking in that why component and like, you know, don't always consider, you know, everything of, you know, the, the experience. It's just entirely, I want to do this experiment and this is what I need for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more that that pervades every aspect of the world, you know, the more meaningful end is sort of squeezed out, you know, of, you know, even the sort of like interpersonal social experiment experience you know, where Caleb and Nathan can't actually have a real conversation anymore mm -hmm. because they're navigating these systems of, you know, surveillance and deception and trying to sort of beat each other through their interpretations of this machine conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's something that's very difficult within the actual act of creating technology. Like if, if you want to, ask yourself, why does it seem like software kind of sucks? <laughs> like the answer is the, the why of it is, is some guy is just sort of like, he wants, uh, he wants enough money to put his kids into a, a nice school. He wants a, a Tesla so that he uh, has that status of owning a Tesla. Like it's, it's not a question. It's not often a question of why am I creating this technology? Like, what is it doing? how will the larger world affect me? It's merely a question of how do I get this done so that I, in my life, uh, have the things I, I desire. Yeah. We could touch on the God aspect of the soul of the world. I think that's sort of a very loaded subject, though. Interesting bit of it where, I don't know, it feels a bit tacked on at times. Where I, I think he's trying to push it out of the way until the very end so that all the dominoes line up. And he's not like, he's not trying to reveal his hand until he's already set up. Okay, here's why everything I've just said in the remainder of the book leads to God. Right, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, there, there's, I think ultimately this, you know, big leap of faith element to it. Whereas, you know, everything is set up so very precisely and, and in detail and you know, and so you'll have this like whole thing talking about music and so on and, and so on. And 
how we find meaning and this idea of, you know, gestural relationship to sound and what it means to understand the musical note and, and mm. all of that. And, and then it just sort of becomes like, and, and so therefore being is a gift. And so therefore there's God. And then, you know, I think there's this idea of prayer as this sort of necessary engagement with the world Mm-hmm. that you know is sort of somewhat separate from this idea of like a proof of the existence of god right yes, right and and so yeah i, th- I thought is interesting i think you know at times uh he tries to present the idea of the existence of god as like a a claim of the book but it but it also you know it's it often seems like you know that's that's one of his presuppositions but you know the it's still inevitably that that huge leap of faith is sort of separate from any argument he's making, really. Yeah, I think the most important bit from that chapter that I got is is this. And personally, I'm still undecided on the, the whole God thing myself. But I think this sort of, I think there is a larger secular desire to not engage with this at all and to sort of think of it as solved that that I do I don't like that I think that we do need to be asking this question of why and but this this I do like this passage because I I honestly didn't think of it until he's he started to talk about this subject and this passage is such writers affirm that God is a subject who can and must be loved and this means that if he exists he's a person marked by those features that are essential to personhood, such as self-knowledge, freedom, and the sense of right and wrong. Such a being can love us in his turn. Moreover, God, if he exists, is one, and he's creator. So again, that, like you said, there's a lot of sort of leaps there, but I think once we've established that we in this conversation and in our larger world are engaging in this subject-to-subject interaction, it does make a lot more sense to me to try and think of God as subject, maybe not person. I'm not a huge fan of that idea, but certainly the idea that there is this possible subject to subject interaction with God. Yeah. He talks about the, you know, the idea of the temple as the sort of, you know, body of God within the sacred logic, right? And talks about how this this sense by which you understand that you have a real presence in your body and other people have a real presence in their body. And he writes how God is a real presence in his temple as you are in your body. And, uh, you know, this interesting idea about, you know, what it means to have this presence of God in the world as something mm. that is in some way experienceable, but at the same time, fundamentally not. This is this is one of the big things he talks about toward the beginning of the book, where it's like that God sort of reveals himself in these veiled ways, you know, like the burning bush, that mm. it's like, you know, that's a revealing, but it's also that it's not actually like that God is literally a burning bush. Mm. And that that's the whole wholeness of what it means to be God. But you know, the, the, but that he's revealed in the way in which, you know, we have this scientific understanding of fire and what it does and so on. Mm. And then you have this bush that burns, but is not consumed that reveals 
and that is communicating to you that reveals something about some transcendent possibility to the world outside of our scientific assumptions and that you know through the sort of architecture of the temple through the experience of you know music and so on we experience elements of the same thing where we can sort of see the presence of something outside of the purely scientific accounting for the world right and and so yeah so i mean there there is the jump to say you know that that's god but but it is this is this interesting image of you know you accept much more readily this idea that you have some real presence in your body that's like you know not visible right but you know and, and so it's it's a similar way but on a different scale that's sort of like outside of our like human modes of thinking to understand the way in which there is this sort of godly presence in the world and and so you know, I, I think it's a different sort of case for arguing the, the existence of God where it's because it's it's basically it makes it very human centric in a way where it's about like, what is that? What does that mean in somewhat practical terms in terms of like human thinking and behavior mm-hmm. where it's like it's about facing the earth and facing each other and facing art and beauty and so on. And exactly. That, yeah, and I think when you do that, when you perform that process of facing, I, I think the existence of the transcendental is, uh, I think, undeniable. And I don't, of course, how you how you interpret the existence of the transcendental is kind of up to you. I think the idea that it can be reduced is just total hogwash. It can't be scientifically reduced to, as he makes the case, you know, music can't be reduced to frequencies and sounds. There's more to it. There's there's this gravity and this presence there. Yeah. And and so I mean, I think you know it's it's really interesting with with the film, I thought, you know, because there's there's these constant cuts to just these natural scenes. Mm. And so you have, you know, what you're describing where it's this like human drama between, you know, competing people. But then it, there's also the way in which as they're caught up in in this drama and, and you know, fighting over like this AI and what it means and so on, there, there are all these things that are like directly around them that they're sort of missing out on. Mm. And so you have, you know, these beautiful scenes and these sublime scenes and so on, and all of these presences in the world that they're ignoring. And this idea of, you know, the life of prayer as a rescue from the fall, you know, that obviously there there, there are some, I guess, more immediately recognizable benefits to this idea of seeing other people as subjects rather than objects right that that we can sort yeah. of understand very intuitively the sense of like cruelty if you just start start viewing people as objects but th- th- then there's some there's something much more complicated as you start to delve into our rituals and taboos and so on mm-hmm. and thinking about this idea of of something like prayer where you you know if you if you have a very sort of just like materialist view of the world is achieves nothing and is a sort of waste but that you know if if you have the sense that you need to be also be pursuing this sort of deep question of why then it's a very important 
way of opening yourself up to presences that are not accounted for in that other system. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you, when you're working with technology, you have to be asking of it, how does this interact with a transcendental and not just how is this thing built? How does it operate? What are the causal laws by which it comes into being? There's always the question of how do us humans as these, these beings with experience, how does it fit into this? Right. And I guess an, an interesting thing going back to the film as well is, you know, what does Nathan in a very human terms imagine it means to be this godly creator who makes this life versus there's a lot of considerations and responsibilities and so on of being that godly presence that mm. he's he's not factoring in there right. that you can maybe sort of intuit through you know other elements of the of the film yeah i think he's just consumed with the idea of being the person that creates this thing and is not considering anything else yeah i mean i mean there, there's really like a lot of big questions when when you really sort of grapple with that angle of things where it's like so it, you know there's the question of what does this ai understand of the color blue which in some ways is so much more narrow than this idea of like you imagine you know this sort of transcendent being who creates the whole world and creates that blue sky and all of that mm -hmm. and and so you have these scenes of just showing like you know the clouds floating by streams running and on some level these are doing nothing you know mm -hmm. at least uh -huh. in terms of for humans right there's a whole ecosystem going on there but to the the sort of human core of the film these things are sort of doing nothing and and yet you know there's a very shallow way in which they're they're factored into his plans where it's like oh she'll want to escape out here and she'll you know want to see that blue sky mm. but that you know this idea of you know creating all of this not for that one specific goal but just as like part of this very vast meaningful world that's the sort of like great gift of being and that it's something to like interface with is so much more going on there than than just the ai questions absolutely and i do think technology should be harnessed in that direction of, of enabling us to essentially better experience beauty. And I don't think that means eyes that are able to zoom in or whatever. And of course, you know, maybe that, maybe that's a cool thing, but really about what are the things we create? Uh, what are the things we do? How do we arrange everything around us? And does that fit into the world does that fit into all these other beautiful things around us or are we simply trying to impose our own will and impose our, our control on these things because we think we're uh destined or 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 we just sort of like desire this this control or creation itself though to the point of being able to zoom in and some implicit ideas of like returning to tr tradition or whatever i mean something that i think is interesting with aesthetics is you know that we inherit a lot from Scruton talks about like you know a lot about the sort of like romantic era you know aesthetic theory but uh you know you have things like the picturesque as this very like human crafted 
way in which you design like spaces not to be mm-hmm. like perfect and symmetrical, but to look kind of wild in a very intentional way right. and to look like pictures of like, you know, old paintings and, and the way people would design things in that. And there, there are also technological elements in the period where you have like um Claude glass, for instance, where people would go out into nature but they would also sit and look through this colored mirror so that they would see the landscape reflected in this sort of like tinted pattern that looked hmm. more like an old painting. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, cool. yeah. And and so like, I think there's something to that, you know, where it's like that, 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 that glass doesn't, you know, I don't know. It doesn't really have a value proposition beyond the aesthetic. And hmm. so as much as you might look back on it and think like, Oh, that's silly. You know, it, it's it's this thing that you're designing for this aesthetic experience, mm. and that shapes this sensibility that then, like, we've kind of just internalized and inherited in certain ways, and you know, recreated through like photo filters and things like that. Right, yeah. But um, <laughs> but you know, th- but then it's like th- there there's something things that can kind of get lost in that. But there's also like you know, there there are ways in which we can kind of pursue those ends and, you know, enhance those sorts of uh, impulses that we have to sort of experience things in in those manners and and so on. Exactly. Yeah. I I don't want to be a Luddite in terms of like total negative anti-technology and, but I also don't want to be fatalistic about technology either. I think because these machines are completely built and created by humans, we have this ability to create glass that enables this aesthetic experience for the experience itself. And we're not locked into creating, you know, like uh, insane uh, factory farming with our technology. And that, that difference of, of creating technology for beauty and for flourishing rather than just doing what is most profitable or or what seems to be inevitable. That's sort of the difference as I see it between transhumanism and transhumanism. Yeah, that's a great summary. I was also thinking, as you were saying that about what one of the, the things I was talking about when I was watching the film with Frankenstein is like, so that creature is taught on a very curated set of books that forms like the 18th century education. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Ava is trained on Everything. just 100% of all search data and right. conversations and facial data and so on. Mm. And so th- that's that's something where it's like, you know, we have to really not just sort of think about like pumping in as much data into everything as possible, but also think about like, what is it that really matters that we want to replicate and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a a very important thing in machine learning is, okay, what data am I putting into this machine and not just, and thinking about that uh, and how am I, what loss function am I using? Like, what am I comparing this data against that? That's all very key to developing these sorts of systems. Yeah. And and so, you know, I I think you're right that there's this difference of being like, you know, not necessarily being a Luddite, but like thinking about ways in which this can all sort of develop and play out with these questions about why and so on. Yeah. And, you know, I I think the film does have elements where there is the sort of surface plot of, I don't know, malicious AI 
goes rogue kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But there is, I think, also a lot of interesting stuff going on, you know, through visual levels and, you know, more subtle levels and so on. And that does, I think, really capture a lot of the whole experience of things. And so, yeah, it's really interesting looking at these two, you know, as these two visions from, you know, this this moment in like 2014 and, and you know, very different sort of angles and, and walks of life. But and, and yet this is like the, the sort of vision of present and future from this early 2010s moment. Yeah, I was very pleased with how they actually meshed well with each other in, in examining some more things. So thanks for coming on and, yeah, uh, you know suggesting this this film and, and so on and yeah it was a pleasure <laughs>